Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 128. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, we've got long-standing member of the BJJ Mental Models community here to talk with us about a very unique and interesting conversation topic, Mr. Adam Medlock. Adam, how are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you, Steve. How are you? I am doing excellent. You know, the the weather is starting to turn around here. Interestingly, we are recording well in advance. I think right now the episode that's about to go live on Monday is 121. This episode now is 128. So people will not hear this for probably another two months. But at this point in time, it's April here in Vancouver. Finally, it's starting to get a little bit nicer. You know, after a year of being locked in the house, (laughs) I've never been the kind of person who gets affected much by the weather. But man, like a year of being locked in the house, especially when the weather is awful. I have to admit, it did get to me. And it's nice that now things are starting to get beautiful again. You know, hopefully I can get back outside some more. So things are looking up over here in, in Canada. How about you? It's a massive difference for me. For April in the UK, we have had freak snow. So I've been out running today and uh, you wouldn't expect snow in April in the UK, but it made a (laughs) a very enjoyable Sunday morning for me. Now on that topic, why don't we give you a quick introduction? So you've been a member of our community for a long time, and I wanted to have you on here to talk about a very, very specific but valuable topic. So maybe give the listeners a quick rundown. Who are you? What do you do? Where do you work? Okay, so my name's Adam Medlock. I live here in the UK, and I've been training jiu-jitsu for about 10 years. However, our conversation between myself and you, Steve, is that I am a lead autism teacher for a special school here in the UK, and as pretty much for my entire professional life, had worked with children and young adults with autism. And it's through our conversations that um, you've asked me to come in and speak about autism and jiu-jitsu today. So I'm hoping that can give you lots of real-life examples examples of things that I do in my day-to-day classroom practice and how that can help within the gym, whether you're a training partner, whether you're trying with autism or whether you're a gym owner. So I hope that can answer all your questions and queries. Beautiful. That would be wonderful. And I want to get into this because I am not aware of anyone who has had a discussion on autism and jujitsu. And I think it matters because 
I mean, you know how the jujitsu marketing is, right? People who love jujitsu, they will make all sorts of claims about how great jujitsu is for whatever. You know, it's, oh, if you have this, it's great. If you're this kind of person, it's great. And one of the claims that I've heard made a lot is that jujitsu is great for autistic people. And I, I have no evidence that this is true at all. It may be just a complete fabrication, but it's one of those things that I've seen a lot of instructors latch onto. And I've also come to the realization that I really don't know much about autism at all. And I would actually assume that the vast majority of people who train, they're not, you know, they have only a passing understanding of what autism really, really means. And they certainly aren't educated in terms of how to deal with and train with people who have special considerations, especially the coaches in the gym. And so I'm hoping that this episode can equip coaches and training partners and the the students themselves who are autistic with some tools to maximize the value of their time on the mats. So with all that said, something that I've I've struggled with recently that I've I've realized actually I don't understand is really what is autism. I mean, it's a very mysterious condition to lay people such as myself. It's hard to, as with many issues involving the brain, it's very hard to really describe and understand, right? It's not as easy as like I've got, you know, if there's something going on with the body. So I would love to know, like, how how do we define what autism actually is so that people like myself can better understand it? Okay, so where I would like to come from my viewpoint of autism is mainly as a communication-based difficulty. And if you have a look at the classic diagnosis of autism in terms of how Lorna Wing in the 1970s defined it, she defined autism in three areas or her triad of impairment, that someone with autism would normally have communication-based difficulties, that they would have some difficulties with social interaction and then they would have issues which would affect their flexibility of thought and their ability to change the way they're thinking or many people may see this as repetitive behavior however as you're saying is so wide and the current statistic is that one in 50 people have got autism and so many people may state that the autistic diagnosis is so broad it doesn't necessarily capture every bit of need for every person on the spectrum and that everybody will have their own individual strengths their own individual weaknesses but they will always generally be focused in one of all three of those areas i see so what i guess i would like to understand here is we're saying that it's, it's a communication-based difficulty, but it, it spans, you know, a massive, massive breadth of individual experiences. I mean, I have known autistic people who are just completely fine and functional. And, you know, you honestly, you might not even know that they're autistic unless they told you, but then other people have a much more limiting experience with it. And I guess I'd, you know, you mentioned the spectrum, and this is an area where I think, unfortunately, you know, real medicine has kind of been adopted into like a meme culture. And you hear people say all the time, oh, he's on the spectrum, he's on the spectrum. And I know that nothing bad is meant by that. But, you know, it, it's, it's like when people, you know, if when people say, well, I like to have my house tidy and they say things like, oh, I'm OCD. Well, that's not what OCD actually is, right? And I'm wondering from an autistic perspective here, what is the spectrum and, you know, help me understand exactly how all of this framework fits together. Very much so. So one th issue that I have with the spectrum is people almost think of it as a single linear line. 
in that you would have a neurotypical person on the left and you would pretty much have a, a charge bar, like a special meter in a computer game for all, almost want of a better term. And when so many people have enough ticks on a checklist in a very rough idea of how to assess someone with autism, that then they would tick enough on the spectrum. Very much if you would compare it in jiu-jitsu to someone goes from white, they gain enough skills to become blue, they become enough skills to purple, to brown, to black. However, what you would know and what a lot of our, the listeners of this show would understand that just because someone is a purple belt, it would almost be better to graph their skills in all the areas. So this person is a purple belt in pressure passing, but he's only a white belt in heel hooks and he's a black belt in his spider guard. So if I was trying to get someone to think about where someone is on the spectrum, it would almost be a spiderweb model of a spectrum, depending on every person's individual needs. And I feel that would give people a much broader sense instantly of how autism could affect different facets of different people's lives. And that's where they would have the troubles or that they may find that they are unable to access certain parts of life, of jujitsu, of a gym, if that makes sense. I see. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Now, on the topic of that spider web, you know, you're basically saying that there are a bunch of different factors and variables that you could you could measure someone on rather than, like you said, just having like a, a dial between zero to 10. I guess I would ask, what are some of the factors and variables that would fall under that spider web? You know, what are some of the common symptoms and challenges that autistic people experience? Because from an outsider's perspective, you know, when we meet an autistic person, I can tell that something's different, right? I can tell that they're struggling with certain things, but I don't know what's going on in their head. So I can't really tell exactly where the challenge is. And I've never had a one hour conversation where I've sat down with an autistic person and they've explained to me exactly like here is exactly the challenges I'm facing. I'd love to dig into that and understand like what is life like for an autistic person? Absolutely. So as I said, as three broad topics, you've got people that could have communication-based difficulties. That may be the amount of language that they can understand. It may be the amount of language that they can express themselves. Then we've got the social interaction, how they react with their peers, react with people of authority, react with strangers. And then we spoke about the flexibility of thought. So again, this may be repetitive behavior, maybe not understanding and having as strong a theory of mind, understanding other people's feelings. And that's where we can start having conversations of some empathy issues. But as I'm saying, it's so broad. One other area of autism is sensory processing differences. And I'm going to use the term differences because some people would use the term sensory processing difficulties. And many people with autism would say, it's not that I have difficulties processing the world around me. It's that I just process it different from yourself. So a person with autism may not necessarily be able to process light, sound and touch, which is obviously very important in jiu-jitsu. And when I talk about touch, I'm not necessarily talking about just their hands. I'm talking about the skin as an entire organ. Some people may be very sensitive to touch. Some people may be actually seeking that touch. And that may be the reason why they're deciding to try such a close contact sport, even if it is to try and overcome their own barriers whilst on the autistic spectrum and trying to gain new skills. Mm -hmm. This 
makes a lot of sense because it certainly jives with my personal experience where, you know, we talk to autistic listeners a lot of the time. I've worked with um, autistic people before. And like I said earlier, a lot of the time you would never even know. And I guess it comes down to, you know, is their communication ability impacted or is it something that is a bit more subtle for an external party to notice and to really see? So that's very, very helpful. I would ask then, what is the spectrum when we talk about this this concept of a spectrum like what exactly does does the spectrum look like if it, if it's not really a dial between 0 to 10 like you mentioned earlier you talked about how it would be more like a spider web in an ideal world mm-hmm. how would you plot the different types of people who fall onto that spectrum where would a person like myself fit onto that spectrum for example in comparison with someone who deals with autism Someone with autism and you think about what they could necessarily struggle with in their social interaction, their restrictive behaviours, their over or under sensitivities. These are all areas where somebody would be able to almost critique their own own skills, their own sensory perception, or again, if someone is unable to do that, that is where a professional would step in to give a diagnosis. You know, one thing that I don't want to do during this podcast is almost try and give people the tools to diagnose themselves, their friends, their training partners. Obviously, this would come from a medical professional, but when you are starting to see where the person has troubles, they have the difficulties, then they need the accessibility changing for them to access their life, that then this would give the clues for whether that person would be autistic. One thing that I'd always say is that as the knowledge of autism is changing, the criteria that we would use to assess someone with autism will be changing all the time, especially when we think about some of the new research that is coming in towards autism and girls specifically, in that what we are starting to find is that autism will normally present differently in the female population. However, girls have always been assessed for whether they have autism by a checklist that is on observations of boys with autism. So therefore, there's always been a difficulty that girls as historically have been underdiagnosed because the way that we look and the way we assess the spectrum may need refining still in this modern era. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, I guess anything to do with the brain is probably a rapidly evolving area of science and also a lot harder to pin down. You know, like I mentioned earlier, if you have something wrong with your arm or something wrong with your shoulder, it's very intuitive to understand what's going on there, but the brain is so hard to understand and our understanding of it is evolving so much that I guess it's it's very hard to just give definitive answers. And I really like what you said about not providing self-diagnosis tools. I mean, I know that one thing that people have a tendency to do is they tend to throw around, you know, so-and-so is on the spectrum, for example, without really understanding what that means. And I think that it's probably not a good idea for people to self-diagnose whether or not they fall onto the spectrum, right? I mean, I know that in jujitsu, professors tend to act like they know everything both on and off the mats, but this is a matter where I think a bit of humility is helpful and it's good to seek expertise like yourself. 
Yes, absolutely. And uh, when, again, one of my jokes where people say that they are on the spectrum, one thing that you would feel is that generally someone on the spectrum would normally have some form of social communication difficulties. And then they would have normally repetitive behavior or monotropism, an obsession, a fascination. And if you think of most black belts, they're normally people that haven't wanted to talk and just sit in a room and think about grappling systems at great length. So I'm aware of where the parallels come from but it is quite dangerous to say oh he's a bit autistic and it's like no he isn't he just doesn't doesn't want to have a conversation with you <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a significant difference <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah i've received feedback from some of our our listeners right who have said things like well you know if you call autism a mental disorder regardless of whether or not it's classified as a mental disorder if you, you know, for people who have autism, like you said earlier, they might not live their life as if it's a mental disorder, right? For them, it just might mean that they experience the world differently. So I've been told in the past, you know, it's not really helpful if you run around and say that this is a disorder because I just live my life differently from you. But if you keep telling me there's something wrong with me, then eventually it is going to become a disorder because it's going to impact my mental health because you're saying that there's something wrong with me. So I've heard that messaging before that you provided earlier about how it's important to talk about autism just in the context of people experiencing the world differently. Absolutely. And where you carry on using the word disorder, one thing that has been used recently is that they are almost trying to change the language from autistic spectrum disorder to autistic spectrum condition. Mm-hmm. Because uh, people who are autistic and and have pride in in themselves as they should are saying, well, I haven't got a disorder. You know, I'm I'm an actual person, and I've got a condition which may affect how I process and I understand the world around me and how I can communicate with others. But I haven't got a disorder. I'm stood here having a conversation with you. Mm-hmm. And it's just um, subtle changes in language which are showing the acceptance and also the neurodiversity that we have around us because one thing that's got to be stressed is that just because somebody has autism, it's not a life ruined. There are so many fabulous autistic people in the world, so many people who have contributed so much to the world, engineering, mathematics, you know, I dare say that you, you work in IT, the IT and gaming industry would not survive if it wasn't for people that had the brains the way that some of these autistic people do that can see the problems and, and be able to give us the answers that I wouldn't be able to work out if you left me as long as I needed. I still wouldn't come up with the answers that those guys have. Yeah, you beat me to it. I was going to say, as a technologist, I mean, the impact that people on the spectrum have made to my field is tremendous, right? That that level of, I don't even know what you would really call the kind of work that we do, but it, it's basically building things out of pure logic. And it is extremely hard for a lot of people, myself included, to really do that. But to some people, it comes much more naturally and they're able to look at things at a level of depth and with a level of finesse that I simply cannot do. And a lot of people on the spectrum really succeed in that world. So yeah, I mean, some, I would assume, I mean, I'm kind of whiffing off the cuff here, but I would assume that some of the biggest breakthroughs that we've probably had in my field come from people on the spectrum, at least to some degree of tangential involvement. Um, very, very much so. I couldn't give you a specific example or the, the, um, the percentage of inventions and patents that have been done by autistic people but the general strength that a lot of is noted with a lot of people on the spectrum of being able to see patterns being able to create pathways and i feel one thing that you could possibly say as a strength is that 
having the ability to take the human out of the evaluation and just be able to look at a problem critically could often help the situation. You're not trying to think of it as a human creation. You've just got a problem and therefore it's just solution finding, which to a certain extent is the vast majority of jiu-jitsu. Um, if you mm-hmm. take your own emotions out, out of a situation and actually step back and, and use your senses to perceive the situation around you, you'll normally find the answers better than getting embroiled with your own emotions. I see. So it could be a lesson that we need to learn ourselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, this has been very helpful to me to get my head around what autism actually means. And I think the challenge I've had is I've been looking for a definition, a simple checklist, like you said, you know, much like how if you have a a broken arm, for example, it's pretty easy to diagnose that. But autism encapsulates a much broader set of experiences and factors. And this helps me understand it a lot. So with that said, what I'd like to do a bit now is dig into the experience of an autistic person training jujitsu. I have, you know, in my role here as a podcaster, we get a lot of messages from a lot of different people. And it's been awesome to really network and get a chance to talk to people from all over the world with different walks of life and hear their experiences. And autism is an interesting one because, and I think this ties into what you were saying earlier about just how variable it can be. You know, we've received messages and I've heard people talk about how autism, you know, if you're autistic, jujitsu has been life-changing. And I don't know exactly why, but I would presume it has something to do with just the ability to build and implement these systems. I have also heard stories, at least not necessarily from the autistic person, but from their training partners about how they have found it very challenging to train with an autistic person because they're much more likely to be injured by this person, for example. And this could maybe factor into, you know, social cues that aren't being picked up or aren't being communicated effectively to that person. So I'd love to get your take on this. And I know this is probably a, a very hard thing to answer, but for a person who is autistic, what are some of the pros and cons that you think they would be likely to experience with a, a tactile grappling system like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? Yeah, so taking straight off from the word tactile, I think one of the things that I've already mentioned is about the sensory processing differences and the feeling of touch. As I said, some autistic people may really struggle with the feeling of touch. Some people may almost crave it. So uh, the first instance, that would always be a big boundary. And it may be something that people have overcome through jiu-jitsu, which would help them and where they say that jiu-jitsu helped their autism massively. What we've always got to think though is about how that a person with autism is perceiving the entire world around them and then making sure that when they are coming to the class that you are making it as inviting and as accessible for them. So it almost thinking about the fact that the person the person isn't disabled, the person is being disabled by their environment. And that's maybe trying to change that viewpoint from a medical to a, a social viewpoint. Then once you understand the ways that you can create an environment that is good for someone who is autistic, then you will be able to help them flourish. And to a certain extent, working in some of these hobbies or finding a niche thing that they like may almost help a person because they don't necessarily need to have the same amount of social interactions that you would have in a supermarket. 
you uh, let's say if you were walking in the supermarket you've got a, an old lady how would you talk to her then you've got a child then you've got the person at the checkout that's when you're buying your goods how do you interact with all of these things where if you think of jujitsu and a game-based scenario once you're into that room it's you know what is going to happen for the next six minutes of that round it's going to be you're not going to have to chat to this person you've just got to roll so therefore you don't have as many social constructs that they've got to play around with because they've got a game that they can play and use that as their method of communication especially when you're starting to learn how to interact with others having the preconceived ideas of what is needed could possibly help but to get there you'd have to get through that's one of the fascinating things about jujitsu it allows you to connect with people without really having to speak, right? Like you said, you know, a lot of the connection that you make with other people when you're training, it's not because of words. It's because of this shared thing that we do. Absolutely. And I, uh, one thing that I really took, it was from the Joe Rogan and Elon Musk podcast, and he was talking about how poor communication is in regards to speech. If you think about how many bits can be sent across the internet at any one time, and I'm sure you'll have it with your rolling. If you think of the conversations that you'll have with some of your higher belts, you know, they go to grab your sleeve and you chuckle because you know that that game is going to go down 10, 15 steps, and then we're going to end there. And in that split second, how much has been converse between the two of you by one person reaching out and you reading that small play and you both kind of giggle and bump fists and carry on but it shows how much more communication you can do without actually speaking about it interesting interesting is there anything that you would suggest that an autistic person do or try or maybe avoid if they're looking to get into brazilian jiu-jitsu or if they're already training it so one thing that I would always just suggest for someone that's either just training or wanting to get into it is talking. I'm aware that a lot of people with autism can talk about having anxieties based around social interaction and the nerves. And one thing that I would suggest is if you are struggling and you are a person on the autistic spectrum that's wanting to start, start having a conversation. If If the people you are with don't understand your needs they're never going to be able to create an environment that would be beneficial for you and to a certain extent as a coach on the flip side if you are aware that you've got someone who's coming to your class with autism if this person's willing to come to give it a go they must be willing for you to give to have a two-minute conversation and say you know how, how can i make this session the best i can for you is there anything that i need to do is there anything that i can help with to ensure that you get the most from it you enjoy it and that you carry on coming back and grow into the grappler the person that you want to be well let's talk about that conversation because that's something that i've heard before which is that the importance of communicating with the autistic person and the importance of that person communicating with you about needs is paramount. And the funny thing is, this is not a consideration that's unique to autism, right? I mean, this is just general life, but it it's something that I think we all have a tendency to avoid. And I'd like to explore this a little bit. If you're, for example, a an autistic person, how can you best communicate to your training partner what you need and vice versa? what should they be communicating with you or asking you? Well, I'd always just say that having an open conversation is going to help you just in the same way that you you wouldn't start a role if you're coming back for an injury without 
tapping and saying, I'm, I'm really sorry, my shoulder's hurting a bit. So if you get close on that Kimura, can you just be careful? If someone's saying, well, actually, I'm feeling a bit triggered by people going for my neck at the moment and I'm a bit new, can we just play nice and light? 99% of your training partners are going to respect that. And I'm sure having that patience with someone who has has got autism, you know, actually, to be honest, I'm feeling a bit uncomfortable. It's it's my second class and you're saying sparring. I'm not, I'm not happy. I'm not feeling ready to do that. Having that old school gym mentality of, no, you get on the mats, you do the rounds. I say when you sit out, it's borderline abusive. You know, let, let the person have, have their time to observe if that's what they need to do. You know, it may take six weeks for them to be ready to try some specific sparring, but that's fine. You know, it's, it's their journey. And, you know, if they're a paying customer to your gym, you've got to let them access how they want to access your, your learning. So this is a really interesting consideration and something that I think as a community, we often fail to do, which is to make things comfortable and and welcoming to people outside of the stereotype, right? I mean, jujitsu, the stereotype for people who train jujitsu is basically young men. And it's got to be tough if you fall outside of that demographic. I've talked about this in the past, where if you are female and you want to do jujitsu and you walk into a gym and you're the only woman there, it's not a good look, right? Even if everyone is technically perfectly welcoming and happy and they're nice to you, there's still a subtle signal that's being sent out that, you know, this this is not my tribe. And so the gym owner and the community have to work extra hard to make things welcoming or you're going to lose that whole aspect of the community. And I, it sounds like the same thing is applicable when you're communicating with students who are on the spectrum. Absolutely. And I think you could take a, a two-pronged approach to this. I think you can talk about the accessibility of your gym, which I'd like to talk about after this. But then also, as you're saying, for getting started, and I'm glad you mentioned women. Obviously, as a listener of your podcast, um, one of the best episodes that I could possibly take from you was the episode with Jeff Shaw, where he was talking about onboarding. And I just felt that that practice was so accessible and would give so much to so many people that, as you say, fall outside that general model of what you'd expect a jiu-jitsu athlete to be, which is a young male in his 20s to 30s. And one thing with um, Jeff Shaw's onboarding program, and I was lucky enough to see it um, being on your Discord, is that everything he did as the introduction would help to reduce anxieties. If you are a person who has got autism, who has got anxieties about starting a class, just like as you said, people that don't come from the, the, the predetermined route into jujitsu, like, like women, for instance, they may be nervous. They may not know how the class starts. They may not know what they could expect in a class. Do they know who's going to be greeting them? For someone who has got autism that is preparing themselves for a conversation, maybe for weeks, maybe for months, and then they turn up to the first class and it isn't the head coach, it's the assistants that stepped in because mm -hmm. it's a Wednesday night, that could throw so much. Do they know who they're coming and who are they going to have as the class? Are they going to know what time they've got to turn up, especially now with COVID regulations as they are? I know so many gyms have got turnarounds between classes. Are they aware of how they can come to the gym? Do they know where to get changed? And all of these things, if you can give the answers before, which are going to answer so many questions and reduce so much anxiety, it's always going to make that actual physical step onto the mat so much easier. Because as we say, there's the amount of 
young men that may see the sign ring up turn up the next day but this may be a person that's driven past your gym who has sat outside it for six months a year too nervous to come in and anything you can do to break down that barrier and create that welcoming and easy first step is obviously always going to help someone regardless of whether this person's got autism or not so i've got to give some props to jeff shaw that's a really important point, which is, and interestingly, like I said earlier, it sounds like a lot of what you're saying is just general good advice that we as a community fail to do a lot of the time, which is to actually communicate effectively with our students and be considerate and listen to them and be attentive to their needs. I mean, if your idea of onboarding is the guy shows up and you just throw them into the shark tank and they get tapped a hundred times, I mean, you're going to lose a lot of people, right? What you're going to wind up doing is you're going to basically wind up building fight club. You're going to attract people who are like the people that you've already got. And as a business owner, that's not a good thing, right? It's it's also not good to build a culture that is lacking diversity. But beyond that, you're going to lose out on a lot of potential business if your gym is not welcoming to people outside of the stereotype. And I think that that ability to be considerate to new students, to be attentive to their needs, to be welcoming is super important. And the other thing as a black belt, one of the things that I try to do when I am on the mats, you know, one one of the phobias that I think we all deal with is the phobia of being excluded, right? I mean, we people have nightmares about gym classes where they're the last one picked. And the unfortunate thing is people who are different from the stereotype often fall into this in jujitsu, right? And if a person feels like they're always going to be the last one picked and no one wants to partner with them, it's really not going to make the gym a welcoming environment. So what I suggest as a senior belt is make a point of seeking out the the people who are different from the stereotype to train with. So for example, if you've got someone in the class that you know is struggling, make a point of choosing them as your partner and creating the creating the visual that it is a good thing to train with this person, that they're part of the flock rather than they're like the person that no one wants to train with. So it's important for the senior people to model that behavior and to make a point of going out of their way to train with people outside of the stereotypical grappler. Absolutely. And one thing that I would always have to say is that as someone who is either just in the gym or as the coach, you've got to leave your own biases at the door. Maybe this person has come in and is struggling a bit. You can see that they're very nervous they're within their own shell, but that doesn't mean that in a year's time, this person won't be so hooked on jujitsu and be watching every video possible and will be the person that can tell you every quote that's happening at this present time and then turn themselves into a great grappler themselves. I'm, I'm sure you've met so many weak, nerdy kids over the years that have turned into these jiu-jitsu dudes. And I think, as you say, if you're in one of those old school fight club mentality gyms, you're not going to have that part of your business because the people won't come. They, they're going to want to go to places where they feel welcomed, but you still don't know what you may give up in the future. Well, on the topic of how to build a welcoming gym, let's talk about the instructor's perspective here. Mm -hmm. How do you send the message that your gym is welcoming to people who are autistic and beyond that, just people who are different from the stereotype? Well, regardless if someone's got autism, I think the, the question is accessibility. As you're saying, is 
if you are wanting to bring in more people from a more diverse background, you're going to have to make sure you've got an accessible gym. Just like in the conversations you've had about women, have you got a women's changing room? If you're wanting to start having more disabled athletes and starting to grow that part of your community, do you have a disabled changing room? If someone is struggling with how they move around, one thing that you always say with someone with autism is that they like clear demarcations and for things to be clearly signposted so they know what they're going to do. Like when you walk into your gym, how many gyms have you gone into where the mats are at the back of a weights room and unless you know they're there, you'll never, you'll, you'll never convey your way around four different weights machines to get to the mats. For someone with autism, that could be the barrier that stops them ever getting into your class. That's a good point. Having the accessibility of your gym and making it an environment that is welcoming for as many people as possible will always help you on that first opening. And one thing that I would say that as the stereotype for someone with autism is to have a quite calm environment. You know, how many times have you gone into a gym and it's got metal or hip hop music? Absolutely blaring out on the systems and if you're an autistic person that struggles with being overstimulated by sound you know playing into the autistic stereotype they've just taken off their ear defenders and dr dre's coming out at an ear piercing loud volume is that going to be welcoming for people that aren't in the fight club mentality that's a really good point and i've never really understood that whole blaring aggressive music while you're rolling like what exactly is that intended to achieve is this it feels like some kind of weird posturing where people feel like oh, i need to be i need to send the impression that this is a fight club you know i don't really understand why you need to listen to that interestingly at our gym we listen to pop music while we roll it's hilarious there is something to be said about choking a man while singing george michael's faith in his ear um <laughs> But yeah, very much so. It's just, it's, it's these small things that I, I know may sound really silly, but just the difference between you having the volume just down a bit as someone first walks in it may, may just make the difference for that first person on their first class. And then just really small, simple stuff that would help someone and give off the vibe that you would want to give to be a friendly, welcoming and accessible gym. So as we said, if someone is on the autistic spectrum and they've got sensory processing differences, they may struggle with light. So they may prefer to have a calmer, more neutral light, not necessarily big, bright tube light. And I'm aware that you may not necessarily be able to change the lights in your gym, but that one light that's in the far end that's flickering this entire time and has been for the last six months, you know, change the bulb. Surely if someone comes in who's on the autistic spectrum, trying to listen to what you're saying and take in and process all the information, and they're probably dealing with their own issues on the cognitive load that's been placed on them. They're probably nervous about the people around them. And then you've given them a flashing light whilst they're trying to take all this on board and they're trying to keep themselves calm. Like, it's just not going to help. And it doesn't give you a professional or a welcoming environment if you've got your lights not working in your gym. So it may sound so simple, but again, just something as simple, simple as that as one change of a light bulb may make the difference for someone. I really like what you also brought up about accessibility and clarifying where things are, you know, have a clear signage, making sure people have a, you know, know what to do. Where are the mats? 
how many gyms do you go to where you walk in and it's just a pile of people fighting and there's there's no indication as to what to do? Now, if you've been training jujitsu for any length of time, then that might seem normal to you. But I think we have to pause and reflect on how weird it actually is that this stuff seems normal to us because it's really not normal. And, you know, I've always wondered why don't more gyms have better signage? I mean, when you go into a lot of gyms, they'll have wall-to-wall medals that they've won, you know, and that that's cool and all, but maybe that wall space would be better suited having clear signage, putting up the gym code of conduct, having instructions on what to do if you're the first timer on, you know, it, it isn't even clear to a lot of first timers that you even need to get changed, right? I mean, that might sound silly to people who have been training for a while, but if you don't know anything about jujitsu, you know, can you even really expect that people are aware that you have to put on pajamas and that there's a place to do it and that the belt matters? Like these are things that we all take for granted. And yeah, some people might just amble their way through it, but the more friendly signals and the more gentle nudges you can give to first timers, the better off your business is going to benefit from overall, right? I mean, that's not a matter to do with people on the spectrum. That's just in general. If you can streamline and funnel people in so that they more immediately know what to do, they know who to talk to even, it makes it feel far less scary to a newcomer. And like you said, if you're, you know, if you have students who are autistic or maybe have other considerations, all of those gentle nudges can be extraordinarily helpful. Absolutely. And you're always, you've got to think of the level of anxiety. You don't know how much they are necessarily struggling with their own sensory processing. You don't know if they may be starting to get a bit dysregulated themselves and not able to control their emotions as well as they are. I can remember when I started and you'd be horrendously nervous, stood on the side of the mats. And again, I'm, I'm aware that I can pick up on the social cues of the people around me. I'm watching the conversation. If this person isn't able to do that, then you need to give them as much accessibility at the front end to help them. And one example that I always laugh at is how many classes do you have that say, all right, everybody line up. Have you got a line on the mat? If you are a person that doesn't, doesn't know what to do and the instructor shouts, all right, line up. This is something that I, I just don't get. Like, I don't know about your gym, but at our gym and at a lot of gyms, everyone lines up by rank, which is a dumb thing if you ask me. I mean, you, you know how I feel about these rituals and stuff, but it seems like every week there's a situation where we say everybody line up and the new white belt obviously has no idea how to line up because this has never been communicated and they mess it up and they wind up on the wrong side and then the instructor has to stop everything and say no the new guy goes to the other end wonderful you know for for no benefit you've taken the brand new person and you've made them feel like a dumbass in front of the whole class like why couldn't you just clarify if you have to have this ritual at all and i'm not totally sure why you do but if you do have to have rituals like that where people line up by rank like make that extraordinarily clear because regardless of whether or not you're autistic it's a shitty experience if you're the new person and you get called out for doing the wrong thing in front of everybody absolutely and there's nothing worse than that white belt walk of shame you've seen so (laughs) many people do it (laughs) no you can't line up with the black belts i know this is your first class but you have to go into the the shame section over there you are you're Um, the lowest of the low so you're supposed to line up on the other end now have the walk of shame to the yeah it's it's really gross actually and we take we take that for granted because once you've been through that once you know you you understand how things are supposed to go but man that's an awful experience for the first timer 
Absolutely. And then a conversation that I know you've had on this show is the uh, one, two, three clap. If you've never explained that to someone who's autistic or um, my wife is deaf and she trains, you know, how are you expect meant to explain one, two, three clap? And if the person doesn't know it and then all of a sudden they're really concentrating and they're just starting to get the information that the instructor is saying and they're really focused in and because they're having to focus so much, they're maybe not taking as much awareness of the room around them and then suddenly every member of the room claps at once and shouts, like how much is that going to put you off? How much is that going to possibly crash the entire last 10 minutes of learning for you? that you've been trying so hard but as with everything and that's why i've got to say that onboarding program that jeff has if if he says all right at the end of my instruction we do this therefore this is what it signifies and it's the change between then the person understands what's coming up therefore it's then just a transitional cue for your class to change i know that you've had the argument for whether it's needed but just in such a simple way if that's something you have in your gym you can make it accessible just by giving forewarning well, let me ask a question here on the topic of all of these weird structures we have, right? In terms of jujitsu, all of these little cues we have, like the one, two, three clap thing and the lining up and all of this. From the perspective of someone who is autistic, is that stuff helpful once they understand it? Or is it a hindrance and we'd be better off without it? Or is it harder to answer than just yes or no? <laughs> well, as with everything here, I've got to come with the caveat that everybody is different and some people may find it helpful and some people may not. One thing that I would find that for myself coming from a teacher, especially someone who works with young children, I like a lot of those tools in, in a behavioral management in the sense of a classroom kind of approach in that it gives clear symbolic starts to the class. It gives you the demarcation between listening and doing it. And then it helps to give you that separation. So for me personally, I am a fan of those, but I can understand for let's say in your adults where I'm not wanting to tell you, all right, you've got to clap. And after you've clapped, it's time for you to work then it may not necessarily be needed. But for somebody with autism, they may enjoy having that structure because then they understand that there is the clear break and it's time for them to go to the next activity. So you've just kind of got to ask and understand it from their point of view. Yeah, you know, those rituals are a funny thing. I don't mind things like the one, two, three clap, although I mean, I had a weird experience with it. I remember we never used to do that. And then one day without any warning, my instructor just started doing it and everyone clapped and I'm just sitting here like a deer in the headlights. I have no idea what just happened. Like what, where did that come from? I have never seen that before. And then, okay, I guess we're doing this. Rituals like that, I can see actually having some degree of benefit because like you said, it it is nice to have a demarcation line between the different parts of the class. The kind of rituals that I tend to advocate against are the ones that are really more about control and manipulation, at least in my mind, right? Those are the ones that uh, they're kind of dicey, but there's nothing wrong with a ritual to give things structure or if it can act as like a memory hook that you can use to remember things better, you know, or to, to adjust your mindset. I don't have a problem with that. And I could see how actually in this case, it could be helpful to someone who needs that structure, but you're bringing up a really awesome point, which is you really, I think, need to tell people in advance what's going to happen. And I wonder, do you think it's a good idea, not just for autistic people, but for really any new student, is it wise to maybe have a dry run of a class with them before they just get in there to like sit down and outline, here's exactly all of the things that are going to happen so that you don't get caught unawares? 
I'd like to feel so. Just uh, preparation is the key to everything. I'm sure we've all had moments in our life where we've turned up for something and we've realized we've come vastly underprepared. And just having the preparation, having the foresight of what's going to happen is always going to re remove as many barriers as you can have. If, if this conversation was to matter or if it was a job interview, you'd want to make sure you've done your homework because you don't just want to try and say the first thing that comes off the top of your head. So in the same way, you don't just want someone to be reacting, you want someone to be able to prepare. And just like in a jiu-jitsu match, you don't want someone to suddenly just be trying to think of the moves. You want someone to understand where they are, understand what they're going to be seeing, understand the situations that they're going to find themselves in. And by having that preconceived idea, that's where you say the black belts can see for in time. And it's not that they're looking for everything. They just know the three things that they do need to look for. So if you give people the tools before on their first class of the white belt, it, it's something that's quite clearly transferable to the skills that you praise black belts for. Mm -hmm. It's just that they've got the preparation and they know what to expect. Yeah. I think the big takeaway I'm getting here, and really I, I shouldn't be surprised, but it's that communication is really the most important thing. And that is just talking to people, telling them what to expect and being attentive to any considerations they might have to make the experience the best that it can be is it kind of sounds like that's really the crux of this thing is just good two-way communication with the student. Absolutely. And then on the communication, I think you just need to think about your language choices as well. That having the amount of language and the amount of information that's given to them and the way that you give it to them is always going to be a hindrance. So one thing that I may suggest is if you're working with someone who is autistic and some, especially someone who is new and is starting your fundamentals course is maybe think about the cognitive load. Think about the amount of language that you are using for that person does that person need to know the exact millimeter and the angle that you have to put the foot and arch the toes to get the correct grip on the hip or do they just need to know put your foot on the hip if that's what they need because that's their level of cognitive load for them to achieve a flow state in that session then that's the amount of language that you need to use so you're always just going to be thinking about the way that you're communicating with your audience but regardless of whether someone's autistic or not if you are the instructor, that's what you should be doing for the class. If you get a class where suddenly no white belts have turned up and it's just your purple belts, then you can nerd out and do a deep dive on a, a specific area that you need in work or something really quite tricky or advanced, where if you're aware that you've got a fundamental class that's all on their first few weeks, you won't want to be using as much language and necessarily trying to put as many comparisons in between different positions because you're just wanting to build fundamental techniques that are based on solid, simple language that you can then scaffold and chunk to create the level of game that you would want the person to see in the future. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. And, you know, something that I have made the mistake of doing in the past, you know, I've had to answer this question before, you know, how do you, you help an autistic person? And I've given advice in the past, which in retrospect was poor advice, where I said things like, oh, well, you know, if you have an autistic training partner, you know, you can talk to the instructor, you can talk to their parents for advice, blah, 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 blah. And I had people come back to me and basically say, why don't you just talk to the person? And this is a, a cognitive bias that I think, I mean, I know I've suffered from, and I think a lot of people do, which is when you have someone come in that's different from you, sometimes you feel like, okay, if I want to help this person, I've got to go and talk to the instructor about how we can make this a good environment. Maybe I can talk to this person's family about what their needs are, but 
at the end of the day, just talk to the person, <laughs> like talk to the autistic person and just ask them what they need. It's so tempting to inadvertently kind of dehumanize them and try to go around them and talk to everyone but them. And I guess that comes from a bias that maybe, you know, oh, this person can't help themselves. But really, at the end of the day, the best advice I think that anyone can give is talk to the person who is impacted here and ask them what you need from them and tell them, you know, you know, ask them what they need from you and tell them what you need from them. And that kind of communication is paramount. Absolutely. And then it's always just having the expectations right. If it's yourself that's going in, if it's yourself as a coach that's got someone new walking into your gym, if you're aware of the expectations and what you're necessarily wanting to get out of the situation, it's, it's going to always help. And obviously I work in a specialist field and normally the autistic people that I work with have got a comorbidity and have normally got a, a learning difficulty aside. What I would say is that the children or adults that are normally joining a jiu-jitsu class, there's going to be lots of life that they can normally access for them to be getting to this point. And if they can, they know what works for them and they know what doesn't. And it may just be the simplest of things. Like I said, if, if it's a light bulb that's flickering, if it's the fact that they haven't got a sign so they didn't know where to go, if it's the fact that they didn't know how to start a class and you could have literally just given them a, a PDF that said this is the time table and how we set out a class and this is the class structure. Just something as simple as that may be the, the difference between somebody accessing your gym, becoming a customer, becoming a member of your friends, becoming a fat part of your family circle, however you look at your gym. Or it could be someone that walks away after one class and never tries it again because it's a stupid sport. And it could actually be the one thing that they would have loved and it'd be their absolute passion if they've just had that first experience that would have helped them. Well, Adam, this has been an awesome conversation and super helpful to me. Any topics that we missed or ideas you want to share before we tie this one up? The last one, and it's just one that I, I, I haven't managed to find a way in, is just thinking about regulation and anxiety. Obviously, people with autism may not necessarily be able to regulate their emotions. And if they are starting to feel that they are becoming triggered for a better sense of the word by touch, by the environment, by the social cues, have you just thought about giving them that way to have a safe space? I know that you spoke about gym rules of walking off the mats, but if you've got someone, and again, not just autism, if you think about maybe with women or people that maybe have got emotional trauma, have you got a safe word? Have you got a, a sign that can give you to say, look, I just need a couple of minutes off the mat. Just let me let me have my space. Let me have my time to calm down. I'll be ready when I come back. You know, I'm not running out. I'm not fleeing but I've, I'm aware that this situation isn't the best for me. So can you just give me two minutes? Like just some, again, something as simple as that, knowing that people can then have a way out if it gets too much, it would normally help them have the ability to step into a situation that may be uncomfortable if they know they've always got a path out of it instead of finding themselves in a situation that will only get worse and start to spin out of control. That's a really, really important point and something that I think culturally we do the wrong thing in jujitsu, which is that we tell people, I mean, we do technically kind of have like a safe word, right? The tap. But that said, we also set expectations around the tap. Like, I mean, how many times have you heard someone say, oh, don't ever tap from pressure or something stupid like that, right? I mean, I don't understand that. I will tap from anything, right? If I don't want to be there. If I have work tomorrow and you're grinding your gi fabric into my eye and I don't want to look like Edward Norton in Fight Club, I'm going to tap. I don't care if you're a white belt, right? There's no 
benefit to me letting you rip my face apart just to prove a point. And similarly, you know, sometimes it can just be a matter of, of discomfort. I think we forget. I mean, yes, if you're a brown or a black belt, yes, of course, you're going to have some degree of comfort with the situation where someone is just smothering you and you're going to know what to do from there. But that is a terrifying experience for someone who is a new grappler. You know, they've are, they're already adrenaline dumping probably because they don't know how to regulate their energy and their emotions. And then some senior guy gets mount on them and just like cuts off their breathing. It's a terrifying thing. And we need to stop stigmatizing tapping from pressure or tapping from position. You should be able to tap for any reason you want, including I'm just not feeling it right now. Right. Stefan Kesting was on the podcast talking about that. You know how, look, if you don't want to train, don't, you know, don't train. You can come to the class and you can sit on the sidelines and make a decision there, but don't ever feel pressure that you have to go on the mats when it's, it's not what you really want to do right now. And that I think is an important thing to, to consider that we should stop stigmatizing tapping from pressure or tapping from positions, because especially for newer people, it's tremendously important to make jujitsu welcoming for them. Because yeah, I mean, if you, if they train long enough and they get to Brown and black belt, of course, they're not going to be tapping from pressure or tapping from position, but you've got to have people survive on the mats long enough to get to that point, right? You can't expect new people to be world champions from day one and to be comfortable with these positions. It takes time and familiarity to get there. Absolutely. And uh, what I would say is when I'm talking about this safe word, and it's not necessarily just tapping from pressure or tapping during a roll. Maybe you're in the process of drilling and you've been a bit nervous and you've possibly got swept a couple of times and you've felt a bit bumped and you're a bit unsure and things are getting a bit too much just having that way to say even in that before we're in sparring and we're in specific training actually I just just need a couple of moments and that that's fine and like you say if it takes someone six weeks sitting on the sideline to get the courage to do the warm-up then that's fine and if that's what that person needs to do then you need to let them have that and when we go back to the kind of archaic model you know the fight the fight club gym imagine to take a disability, take autism out of it. If you were to be having a panic attack and you're hyperventilating and you're in quite severe distress at this point and you've gone to sit down on the side of the mat and the coach is shouting at you, no, you get up, you get on the mats, you finish these rounds. Like how much trauma is that going to produce and how you're never going to walk back into that gym where having that ability to just be aware of your own situation, be aware of your own emotions and your own safety physically and emotionally is just going to help you in the long run. And it's obviously going to help your gym knowing that it's a, a safe space for people. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Adam. This was super helpful to me, and I hope it's helpful to everyone out there. I definitely encourage instructors and senior students and really anyone who is interested in the well-being of their gym to consider these concepts and how they can make their gym more accessible and welcoming. Because at the end of the day, you don't want your gym to just be a stereotype, right? It's, it's nice to train with a diverse group of people. And one of the best ways to make sure we do that is to ensure that we're not filtering them out. So Adam, on that note, if people want to learn more about this or if they want to see your work, any resources that you would recommend for the audience? Yes. Yeah, so I've got some videos coming out on the teachingbjj.com. It's the BJJ Globetrotters teaching app. But then I've also got to um, 
do a shameless plug for yourself and the BJJ Mental Models podcast. I'm here on the podcast today because I'm a, a patron of your show and I believe that you guys are flying flying the flag for good practice. Um, what I'd say is if you were ever to have any questions or need any help, you'd be able to find me on your Discord. So therefore, sign up as a patron on this podcast and then if you've got any questions, I'll happily help. Just drop me a message. I didn't pay him to say that. I just want to point you out, didn't. I did not pay Adam to say that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I can promise he didn't. Then, well, thank you so much. I do appreciate that plug. No worries. And I mean, of course, the follow-up there then is if you are interested in joining, patreon.com slash models. This show is completely supported by subscribers like Adam here, of course, and like the other people in our community. If you want to brainstorm with us, get on our Discord, becoming a patron is the way to do that. There's a lot of different tiers, so there's a price point that works for everybody. Again, please do consider it if you're not already a subscriber, patreon.com slash models. And of course, if you want to learn more about the topics that we discuss on the show, if you want to find the archival old episodes of the podcast, or if you just want to shoot me a message, you can do that on our website, bjjmentalmodels.com. Adam, thank you again so much for joining us. Really do appreciate this. I thought this was a super insightful chat, and I really hope it gives people the motivation they need to make their gyms a more accessible and welcoming place to new students. Yep. Thank you ever so much for having me, Steve. All right. And thanks, of course, to everyone out there spending their time listening to me yak and listening to Adam yak. Talk to all of you next week. <laughs>